actually children stop and actually wholeheartedly just turn to their mom and say, thank you. Thank you for so much. And this is true for moms, but it's not just true for moms, is it? There are some people who do just so much for us and that we can't possibly say thank you for all of it. And the risk is that we start to take and take and take from these people and then we say thank you for almost none of the things they do for us. Isn't that a strange phenomenon? But it's one that happens, I think, to everybody. We can have so much to be thankful for that we start to take it for granted and we're hardly thankful at all. A.W. Pink, a well-known Christian theologian, he says, this is much more so true with God. We owe God our greatest debt of gratitude. And yet, Pink says, it is often withheld from our great benefactor simply because his goodness is so constant and so abundant. It is lightly esteemed because it's exercised towards us in the common course of events. It is not felt because we daily experience it. By nature, we're not very good at giving thanks, at showing gratitude. And yet God teaches us in his word that to enjoy living with him and for him, we should rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And so much like how our relationships with our moms, you have to imagine, uh, they might be improved if we said thank you a little more sincerely and a little bit more often. Uh, so our relationship with God. And thankfully our God knows that sinful people like us we're not grateful by nature. And so he not only instructs us to be thankful, but he doesn't want our forced gratitude at all. Instead, our God teaches us how to be grateful by his word and spirit. And one of the ways he does it is by psalms like this one that we just read, Psalm 107. In many ways, this is a beginner's guide to gratitude. Not so much like we saw in past weeks, uh, showing us how to be thankful, I think. Each of us, we know how to be thankful. We, we could do it if we wanted to. But rather, it helps us to spark gratitude, a feeling of thankfulness, so we want to be thankful. And it does that by giving us a number of examples of how much each of us have to be thankful for. And so in this service, we'll consider thankfulness. And we'll work through this psalm in its five parts. First, we'll see uh, that we give thanks because the lost are found in verses 4 to 9. Secondly, the slaves are freed in 10 to 16. Thirdly, the fools are instructed in 17 to 22. And finally, fourth, the perishing are rescued in 23 to 32. And so the redeemed respond is throughout the psalm. And don't worry, we'll move through the five points fairly quickly. Now, first of all, the lost are found. So to begin, the psalmist says that the lost were found by God. We read in verses 4 and 5 that some wandered in the desert. They were hungry and thirsty, and their soul fainted within them. And so picture these people in your mind who are wandering through the desert, exhausted and famished. What do these people so desperately need? We think they need food and water, right? That would be our natural first response. But what does the psalmist surprisingly say that they actually need? He says they need something deeper than that. What they really needed was a city to dwell in he says. And cities, they often have a bit of a bad reputation, don't they? People don't like the city. They don't like going downtown. 
Uh, but often in the Bible, not always, but often, cities are actually seen as a blessing. Think of what a blessing a community of people is, a city. Cities provide shelter, a comfortable place to live. They also provide security, security from robbers and from animals. And they also provide sustenance. Cities have structures in place where they have plenty of food and water for those who need it. And so God's people found themselves without security and without shelter and without sustenance. And so we read in verse 6, They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. And so hungry and thirsty and vulnerable, they called out to the only one who could provide for them, and he does gloriously. Brothers and sisters, first of all, we need to reflect on this for a second. That food and shelter and security, they're not a given in this world, are they? It's a tragic thing if you look throughout the world today, and you can see that millions and millions of people, they struggle to find security and food and shelter. You can look throughout human history. These things we take for granted today, many struggle with, many have struggled with. And yet, by God's grace, even without calling out to God and asking for it, we live in one of the most peaceful and most prosperous times and places in human history. And when is the last time we thank God for it? That many of us have never, ever experienced having to cry out to God for a roof over our heads. We've always had it, by God's grace. We've never truly had to wonder where's our next meal going to come from. We've been provided for, or we had support systems in place to help. When's the last time we thank God for so much food, and such good food? Uh, adequate shelter, or so often so much more than adequate do we thank God for these things since we believe they came right from his hand and they're not things that we deserve as sinful people? People who have rebelled against God on our own. That's just the beginning of this psalm, though. Of course, this is just the most basic level, our, our physical need. As you'll see in each section of this psalm, the physical reality is in the forefront, but that's just the beginning. The substance is in the spiritual reality that lies right behind it. Well, physical hunger and security is a real concern, and we, by God's grace, we should be looking out into the world and seeing how we can give others help if they need physical food and they need physical shelter. But the psalmist knows, and the Lord knows too, that our real spiritual need is far deeper. As Jesus says in uh, John chapter 4 to the woman at the well, he says you can drink that water, and of course we can thank God for the water that we drink. But Jesus says to her, you, if you drink that, are going to be thirsty again. Sinful people like us need something that can truly satisfy. And we can live in physical cities and experience some rest and some security. But ultimately, what the Bible shows us so clearly, this is the trajectory of the whole of Scripture, is we need desperately a city that is better than this world has to offer. That's what God is doing. You can read the end of the Bible you'll see God is preparing a city. A city where we, redeemed people, can dwell with him again. In his presence, experiencing his blessings, where we'll never have need again. That's why our God, he takes action when his people are wandering and helpless and they cry out. And the way, ultimately, that he takes action throughout all of Scripture 
is by sending his son, Jesus Christ, the one described as the living water, the bread of life. And while we are in our homes, we are well fed. But for our sake, Jesus Christ came down into this world full of sinners like us who are wandering in the desert, so to speak. And Jesus went into the wilderness himself. We read he was excruciatingly hungry for 40 days in the wilderness. We read he himself became terribly thirsty on the cross. And we know that while we live in our cozy houses here for a time, we know that the great king of creation came down and lay his splendor aside. And he said, Jesus Christ said, well, he was on this earth here for you and for me. He said, foxes have holes. Birds in the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus experienced the wandering in the wilderness that by nature was ours and should have been ours for eternity. And he did us so that we might never be left to wander in the wilderness apart from our God. Finally, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus Christ instituted the Lord's Supper. He broke bread with his disciples. And breaking the bread, it symbolized the breaking of his own body that was about to occur for your sake and for mine. He distributed the wine. And what did the wine symbolize? His own blood from his body about to be poured out for your sake and mine to bring us back to God. And what did Jesus do when he gave that bread symbolizing his body? When he gave that wine symbolizing his blood? We read the remarkable truth as he gave it to his disciples saying, this is for you to bring you back. We read Jesus gave thanks. What a remarkable truth. Brothers and sisters, are we giving thanks? Are we giving thanks for our shelter and security, the nourishment for our bodies? Are we giving thanks for our eternal security purchased on the cross by Jesus Christ, this city that is coming where we can dwell with God again? The food and drink Jesus Christ gave for our souls so we might never starve apart from God again. Are we giving thanks? First of all, in this psalm, we see the lost are found. That's us, brothers and sisters. Secondly, we see the slaves are freed. In the exile and in other times in Israel's history, uh, like when they were in Egypt, uh, the Israelites were captives. They, they were slaves. They were prisoners. And the second section of our psalm says, Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. Their hearts were bowed down with hard labor, with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord. And brothers and sisters, again, I don't think we know this kind of physical slavery and imprisonment and hard labor, do we? But we need to remember, many people around the world have, and many people around the world do. Again, physically, we're some of the freest people the world has ever known. And do we thank God for our great freedom? I think often we don't. But again, the meaning here is far deeper than physical slavery and freedom. As the psalmist tells us, why were these men imprisoned? We read in verse 11, For they had rebelled against the words of God and had spurned the counsel of the Most High. Again, they were enslaved, they were in shackles to sin. Just as the whole human race, when we rebelled against God, we read it was God himself who had cursed them with hard labor. When did God curse humanity with hard labor? 
after the fall into sin. And yet, these rebels, in chains of their own making, they cry out to God who should punish them. And what do we read? God delivered them. How did God free us from our shackles, from our slavery to sin and guilt and Satan and shame? Again, he sent his very own son. Look at the wonderful words the psalmist uses to describe the, God, the salvation that God sends for his people. In verses 14 and 16, we read, He burst their bonds apart. He shatters the doors of bronze. And he cuts into the bars of iron. You get a wonderful picture here of Jesus Christ himself bursting in to save us when it seems impossible. When it seems we're separated from God with iron rods, with bronze doors. And Jesus Christ storms into the prison to set you and me free from our sin and shame. And we know, of course, the way that Jesus Christ did this. The way he burst our bonds apart. It was by allowing himself to be bound that we might go free. He was condemned and killed as a rebel against man and against God. So we might be received as sons and daughters. So brothers and sisters, are we thanking God for our physical freedom, such as the world has hardly ever seen before? Are we thanking God for our spiritual freedom, which is unimaginable? What freedom we have in Christ from all of our guilt and sin and shame. Are we doing this or are we using our freedom as a license to sin? That's what Paul's concerned about in the New Testament. That knowing we have absolute freedom in Jesus Christ, people might just go on sinning, or at least that's what people are accusing Paul of teaching. I once read this example of learning to live in the freedom that Christ has given us. Picture for a moment a young man. This young man grew up a beggar, living his life on the street, searching for meager food and clothing, just the bare necessities. And one day, a great and loving father at his own expense he adopts this young man. He brings him into his house. He, he cleans him up. He gives him beautiful clothes and wonderful food. Yet the ma young man, he goes to sleep in his nice cozy bed. He wakes up in the morning. And then he goes over and puts on his old filthy clothes. And heads back onto the streets searching for scraps to eat. Brothers and sisters, we need to learn how to live as thankful people. Thankful for our glorious freedom in Christ. That we have a victory over sin and death. That is almost unimaginable. An important part to, is asking God to teach us to feel grateful. To be thankful once again. And so we've seen the lost found. We've seen the slaves freed. And now we see the fools instructed. Looking at the text. Uh, what would you say this third section, this third little stanza is about? Uh, a lot of commentaries mention uh, correctly that in many ways it seems to be about health and sickness. If you look at verses uh, 17 to 19, they say that some suffered affliction, they loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord. And, and absolutely this is true. Health is a gift from the Lord, isn't it? And often we forget that until the Lord takes it away. And we're feeling sick. But then once he restores it, we take it for granted. But again, there's something far deeper going on in this part of the psalm. Why are these people feeling sick? Why are they feeling close to death? We read it in the beginning of verse 17. 
It's because some were fools through their sinful ways. And because of their iniquities, they suffered affliction. They were fools. They lived as though there were no God. They sinned. And were they physically sick as a result? Maybe. But certainly, they were spiritually sick. As each and every one of us is by nature. Brothers and sisters, uh, have you ever done or said something that was so foolish and so wrong or so sinful? Uh, So far the opposite of what you should have said or done. That you felt sick. That you felt afflicted. You felt like you could barely eat. You felt like you could die. I was struck when I was reflecting on this stanza in particular this week. I was just thinking back in my life. I was thinking about all the sinful and foolish things I've said. Sinful and foolish things I've thought. Sinful and foolish things I've done. Praise God. Thank God that I haven't, by doing these things, done more harm to myself or more harm to the reputation of Christ or more harm to others. Brothers and sisters, how often are we thanking God for that? Thanking God for restraining the effects of our sin because we know we could do a lot of damage. We know we could do a lot of harm. These fools here, recognizing their sin, they cry out to God. And how does he deliver his sin-sick people? We read together, He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Any kids who are here, maybe you can tell us what that means. What do you think is the word of the Lord that was sent out? Often when I ask that question, first of all, I hear the Bible, and absolutely true. But there's something deeper than that, isn't it? We read in John chapter 1 about the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ, the great physician, came down to sin-sick fools like us. Harming ourselves, harming those around us, offending our God. The great physician came down in the flesh, the wisdom from above, to grant us healing. And the wisdom is described in more detail towards the end of the psalm. The psalmist praises our wise God for being the God of great reversals, some have called him. The psalmist says that the high and the lofty, those who fancy themselves wise, they don't think uh, that they need God. God humbles them. He brings them low. As the psalmist says, he pours contempt on princes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. Again, we see this wisdom of God, this wisdom of great reversals, most clearly by far, in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, was the highest of the high, the Son of God himself. And he was made the lowest of the low by God's wisdom. The wisest of all, the wonderful counselor, the wisdom of God in the flesh. He was mocked. He was treated as a liar and a fool. Have you ever been treated as a liar and a fool? It hurts. Jesus Christ was treated as a liar and a fool for your sake and mine. He humbled himself so low to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that lowly fools like us, trapped in our own sin, deserving to be left there to die, might be lifted up higher than we ever imagined, back to God himself in his city, to experience what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived. 
Even Jesus Christ himself thanked God for this wisdom from above. We read this in Matthew 11, verse 25 to 26. Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Brothers and sisters, let's join in with Jesus in praying this praise of thankfulness. Thank you, Lord, for loving and caring fools like us. And so we've seen the lost found and the slaves freed and the fools instructed. And now in the last case study of the psalm and our second last point, we see the perishing rescued. One commentary suggests that here in this portion of Scripture, we get one of the most wonderful and most powerful pictures of a violent storm, not only in all of the Bible, but in any human literature. We just get a wonderful, vivid picture here. The psalmist tells us in verse 5, so we can paint the picture in our own minds, that the Lord sent a storm upon the sea. He raised up the stormy wind, the psalmist says, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Can you picture this merchant ship going over tsunami-like waves up to the heavens one moment, crossing, plunging towards the depths the next? Meanwhile, those on board, we read, they reeled and they staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wits' end. Charles Spurgeon on this, on this passage notes that most of us have never experienced anything like this in the ocean. If you have, tell me after the service. I want to hear that story. But Spurgeon helpfully notes that almost none of the Israelites reading this psalm would have actually physically experienced anything like this either. The Israelites weren't really sea-going people. They didn't go out very much on the sea at all. And so, again, the meaning here is clearly not so much physical as spiritual. Charles Spurgeon explains that. He explains that many of us have experienced this kind of turmoil in our souls. We've experienced life events that rocked us and shook us, that left us feeling like we were staggering around, not able to get solid ground. They left us at our wits end, feeling helpless, like there was nothing we could do. And the psalmist says, They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. Often we can cry out to God in times of trouble, can't we? And we should, when sorrows like sea billows roll. But how often do we thank and praise God when he takes mercy on us and gives us quiet? That's what this whole psalm is about. As the Israelites are being delivered from the exile they brought on themselves, as they are coming back home, the psalmist is saying, don't forget, now that it's quiet, that God has answered your cries, don't forget. Give thanks. Praise the God who delivered us, who has promised deliverance and has given it and will given it. Though, of course, the ultimate reality here, as we've already said, is not physical rest for our souls. We also realize we have a lot of physical rest in our lives and we should give thanks for that. But ultimately, we should focus on the spiritual rest we have in Christ. Because the sea we know from Scripture isn't just a picture of power. It's a picture of God's judgment. And we read here, it's God himself who stirred up this storm. And we know when God's judgment rises, we should cry not just that the sea would cover us, 
But we should be so scared on our own. We should cry that the mountains would fall on us so we can hide. But by God's grace, he sent down his son instead. And Jesus Christ experienced the crushing waves of God's heavy judgment on the cross so that eternally we might experience peace and calm. Are we thanking God for that fact? Brothers and sisters, this brings us to our final point. We've seen the lost found. We've seen the slaves freed. The fools instructed. The perishing rescued. And now finally, just briefly, we'll look at the redeemed's response. We're told in verse 1 and just throughout the psalm what the redeemed should do for this overwhelming providence. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. In every single stanza we just went through, we read, Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And the psalmist again, likely right after the return from exile, he knows the people's hearts. He knows that so often people in the Old Testament, people today, so often we're like the ten lepers in Luke 17. Do you remember that story of the ten lepers in Luke 17? These lepers, these social outcasts, these sick people, they stand back at a distance from Jesus Christ and they cry out to him for deliverance. And Jesus says to them in Luke 17, verse 12, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus asked him, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Brothers and sisters, the Lord has been so good to us, physically but especially spiritually in Jesus Christ. For you and me, he gave up his well-beloved son and pours out fresh mercies every morning. Are we like the one cleansed man who came back? Because so often I fear I'm a lot more like the nine. I'll gladly take the blessings. I'll gladly take the answers to my prayer. Good chance I'm not coming back. Recently, a brother from Langley uh, shared with me that he was a member of a prayer group for a while and he was blessed by their prayers. Uh, but one time in particular stands out in his mind. They decided that week they were only going to pray prayers of thanksgiving because they realized how often they neglected it altogether. And he said they left in joy and in tears, amazed at what God had done, so much that God had given, and they had so much to be thankful for. Brothers and sisters, let's keep our eyes open for what God, we have to thank God for. As this psalm shows, there's a whole lot, even if we often overlook it. And let's strive to learn how to give thanks to God in all circumstances, for the clear blessings and even unclear ones. I'd just like to end with one of the most uh, amazing stories of thankfulness uh, I've ever heard. Uh, when Corrie Ten Boom and her sister Betsy were caught hiding Jews during World War II, uh, they were sent to a concentration camp. And Corey Ten Boom writes, uh, We had just arrived, along with hundreds of other prisoners, crushed together for three days with 80 women in one train car. Exhausted, we crawled into the filthy beds that had been assigned to us. But within moments, I sat up quickly, and I bumped my head on the bed above. Fleas, I said. The place is crawling with fleas. Uh, I don't know how I can cope with living in such a terrible place as this. And Betsy said, Corey, I think God has already given us the answer. 
What was that verse we read from the Bible this morning? I pulled out my Bible. In the dim light, I read from 1 Thessalonians 16 to 18. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Oh, Betsy, I said. That's too hard in a place like this. No, come on, Corey. Let's try. What are we thankful for? My sister asked. Well, if we must be in this awful place, I'm thankful that we're together. And that the guards didn't find your Bible, added Betsy. I nodded gratefully. Maybe we should thank God for how crowded we are in here, because that way more women will hear the word of God when we read it aloud. That's right, Betsy's eyes danced. And thank you, God, for the fleece. No, Betsy, Corey said. I can't thank God for the fleece. There's nothing good about them. But we'll just have to wait and see, my sister answered. Every day we were awakened at 4.30 a.m., and we worked an 11-hour day. We were given black bread for breakfast, a thin soup of turnips for supper. The only thing we had to look forward to was when all of us stumbled back to the barracks at night. Before we went to sleep, Betsy and I would open up our smuggled Bible and read God's word aloud to the other women. At first, we posted lookouts to keep a watch for the guards. Anyone caught with a Bible would certainly be killed. But day after day passed, and no guards came into Barracks 28. Soon we read the Bible twice a day, and more and more women came, and they listened, and no one bothered us. One day, Betsy grabbed my arm and whispered, I know why no one has bothered our Bible studies. I overheard some of the guards talking. None of them wants to come into Barracks 28 because of the fleas. I wanted to laugh. All right, Lord. Thank you for the fleas. Amen.